Welcome to Grace Capital Church Podcast, broadcasting from our Pembroke campus. Well, good morning again. This morning we have a real privilege to uh, have a guest speaker with us today. Uh, His name is Mike Mercer. He's a Foursquare pastor, but he is the president of an organization called Compassion First, and I really won't go much into that because you're going to see a video in a moment of what that ministry is. But, but Mike has been a long-term friend. He lives in Oregon with his family. He just launched his daughter, though, to, to college, and she's going to uh, college in uh, Massachusetts, and I heard he was going to be already East Coast. I said, Mike, would you come and be with us? And uh, I've just seen in Mike's life a steadfastness to the call that God's placed in him, uh, a real burden for um, the, the people that we, the Bible would say, would be the least of these. And we know that our call as Christians is to care for the least of these. And so um, you can welcome him when he comes up. We're going to watch a video first, but when he comes to the stage, please give him a big, warm welcome. Mike, it is so great to have you here, but we're going to watch this video. It all started in 2007. We had learned about something terrible. Young girls being bought and sold for sex every day around the world. We were horrified. We had to do something about it. So we looked at a map and researched countries in need. We picked a country that was in great need, but wasn't getting a lot of help. And we went. Indonesia is a nation made up of thousands of islands and over 260 million people. Girls are trafficked from island to island, and law enforcement has limited resources to stop it. Our goal was to create sustainable change that could empower survivors to rebuild their lives. So we opened an aftercare shelter for girls who had been trafficked. We hired Indonesian staff, and we provided partner training for the local police. Along the way, we also started working with at-risk children. sponsorship program to empower families and prevent exploitation. Seven years after we opened our doors, we had two running operations, a third on the way, and our in-country staff was 100% Indonesian. Our mission will always stay the same, to provide long-term solutions for survivors of child sex trafficking. Where and how we tackle this will continue to evolve as we care for more survivors and prevent vulnerable children from being exploited. You can bring hope to sex trafficking survivors and break cycles of exploitation. Will you join us? Well, good morning. I'm so I'm so grateful to be here. It's been actually a long time in coming. Mark and I have been friends for a long time. We just live an awful long way away from each other, and so uh, probably not. Uh, we probably can't get too much further away from each other and still uh, be in the same country. Uh, I am here under terrible circumstances. I dropped my oldest daughter off at college uh, yesterday, and. Um, I'm not thrilled about that. I woke up grumpy this morning. I ripped my favorite shirt. It's just, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's actually, we, we celebrate these, these rites of passage, but I think they're rites of passage for parents, you know, that uh, we're all sad and our daughter's just kicking us out the door, you know, and, and we go home lonely. So I've, I've just actually, it's been, it's been good for my soul to spend a little time with the Warrens uh, over the last few hours and stay in their home. 
and I'm just grateful for your pastors, as I'm certain that you are too. And uh, let me use a non-evangelical word here. Uh, I think you know that you're lucky to have them. And uh, the, here's the thing, is that they feel lucky to have you. And I can say that as a, as a point of testimony. And so I'm jealous of my friends that get to pastor churches. Uh, I have a unique pastorate. I pastor this organization, Compassion First. And, uh, and we do... Uh, uh, very specific work in in care for girls who have been trafficked and so i i'll just give a very quick flyby on in terms of the work that we do uh it kind of falls into three or four uh specific categories we do aftercare for girls in residential and community-based care we have aftercare shelters uh, our flagship operation is in a province called north sulawesi uh, and, and within the framework of our shelter, a girl receives everything she needs for recovery, from catch-up education to frontline trauma uh, therapy modalities to, uh, to life skills to uh, Christian discipleship in a, in a wraparound discipleship format uh, that allows her to make her own journey and her own discoveries about God. There's a, uh, an importance to that, and it's the importance that we all have that we none of us were made to come to Christ. We were introduced to Christ, uh, either by means of a friend or, or by the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of us, the Holy Spirit just got a hold of us, and, and, and for some of us, a combo of both, and, and none of us were made to follow Christ. And, and it's just a, an incredibly beautiful thing that happens between our staff, who loves the Lord very much and serves the Lord and is called of God, and, and a group of, of girls who I think... I'm going to count them as God's favorites, uh, extremely vulnerable, and now rebuilding their lives at very young ages. And, and without going into a whole lot of detail about what aftercare looks like, I want to say this, that you know, it, it's not easy work. It's very difficult work. Um, I think that sometimes when we talk about these kinds of works and projects that we can be a little bit romantic about it and what it means to rescue a child. Uh, they come in with multiple sexual trauma. In fact, it's a very high bar to get into one of our shelters that a girl has to be a girl and under the age of 18 has to have been sexually trafficked and has to have suffered multiple sexual trauma and has to have been legally rescued by police. And, and so when they come in, stability is a ways off. And in fact, we see the progress towards stability as if, if we can get a girl thinking past the next 10 minutes. And then that's a win. And then the next win is 20 minutes. And then the next win is a day. And the next win is a week. And st stability looks like this. Stability is when a girl starts dreaming again. If, if a girl starts to dream, then we've won. And so, so this is a really great question. It's a question we all got asked when we were growing up or when we were children. The question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when somebody can start answering that question... They're on the path to recovery. So we started observing what was available in our field, you know, and what, does, what do good outcomes look like? And, and to, to sort of follow the, the path of the highest potentials for, for any given child that comes into our care, we started asking the question, can these girls go to college? Because we didn't see that taking place. I mean, we saw good vocational outcomes and and, uh, and, and very safe outcomes, outcomes that nobody would criticize. 
uh, but we didn't see the outcome of what is the highest human potential for this child. And I'm one that believes that a child who has been trafficked should be afforded a better future than she would have had had she not been trafficked. That's just a personal belief of mine. So we say, can these girls go to college? And we started to put that bar out there as something that they could reach. And a couple of years ago, we started enrolling girls in college. It doesn't mean that every child will go to college, just like not every one of our children will. But what we believe for each of our children is, is that we want to invest in each of their highest potential and their desired callings and so on. And so we work towards that for each girl that comes into our care. With that, there's a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of work that, uh, that sort of orbits around aftercare. One is legal advocacy and human rights work, that each of these girls has a case before the courts where they have to testify against their traffickers. And, and through our work, we've established safe courts and closed courts uh, for these kinds of cases. The courts have not always been safe. If I get to come back someday, maybe I'll tell our early story and the difficulties that inform the way we do uh, the court days now. But they're very secure days for the girls. Every girl has an attorney. They go through mock trials. Uh, the court is surrounded by security, and it's a closed court day when they go uh, in to give testimony. We also do peer-to-peer -peer law enforcement training, which is, uh, can I just tell you what this looks like? It looks a lot like discipleship. This is not Americans coming in and saying, this is way you, the way you should do your police work. It's peer-to-peer, -peer, it's fellowship, it's relationship building with, with people within the law enforcement community who are specifically called to the protection of women and children. And so we, we have staff that does training, and these trainings are, are joined and have been joined by our FBI and our State Department, our DOJ, and it's privileged work. And then, of course, we, we pay for interventions. The police that we engage with they have a calling, they have a charge, they have an assignment, they have no budget. So when there is an investigation, we get called to put together the financial portfolio for a rescue to take place. Along the way, there's this, uh, well, let me just say this first before I go to the next thing. If we can show that first map, I want to explain that in Indonesia, we, we work along pipelines. There's a, there's a pipeline uh, that is a source population in North Sulawesi, and I would say that more than half of the girls in our North Sulawesi shelter have been rescued from Papua, Indonesia. And uh, where we're working next is in East Java. East Java is very much a source population for a familiar destination you've heard of in Bali. And, and so we work along these pipelines, both with the police training and then with the aftercare. And I just, I'm putting this out there to just demonstrate what what a small organization can do, and really what any of us can do when we find ourselves called of God to something and obedient to that call. We were having a dinner uh, one night with the head of the PPA unit in Papua, in Jayapura, Papua. Uh, the PPA unit is the unit charged with protecting women and children. And, and she said to us, and I just about fell off my chair when, we, when she said it, and you can go to the next slide, that since we started doing our police training in 2013, that they have seen a 50% reduction in the incidences of minor girls being trafficked from North Sulawesi to Papua. For us, that's one of those times where you just look up and you look back and you realize that maybe we're doing something. 
Because for us, the work is just, we're called to it. We love the work. We feel privileged to do it, but it's hard. It's a day-to-day grind. We have an incredible staff of people, and I'm so privileged to work with these people. We have about 60 staff overseas, and they're called of God. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They're excellent at what they do. And I'm proud to know every one of them. I'm head over heels in love with everybody that works for Compassion First. I wanted to say this one last thing before we go to the Word this morning, that along the way we started working in this cemetery in East Java. And, and what I'm going to describe to you, these are words that don't go together. In the, in the centers of the major cities, there are large, sprawling cemeteries that at night, they turn into penny brothels where destitute women at the very end of the road sell themselves for about 75 cents. And there are communities around them that are informed by this micro-economy that exists. And, and by invitation, we have been able to come in and work with this community of women. And it's, it is such privileged work, and we're welcome there. And it's, it's an important thing that we're welcome there. Because charities and churches have tromped through that cemetery a million times. And they come through with their rice, and they, they offer that with a covert contract to say, if you stop doing what you're doing, we'll give you a little more and, and whatever. And they, without realizing it, it's innocent. They crush the little rice economy, and the woman who's selling rice down the street, and she's, her business is dead for three weeks, and she has no choice but to go back to the cemetery and work. And you understand the, the perils of simple charity. The solution looks a lot like discipleship and walking out life and being invited into somebody's life. And so we've been working with the women and the children there uh, for some time, and that has informed the invitation for us to open a new shelter in East Java. And we're just on the eve of opening that shelter. We have all of the capital in place. The shelter is ready, almost ready to go, and we're almost ready for our first intakes. And this morning, as we talk, and as I tell you a little bit, if if our work resonates with you at all, there's a little card, and it's a takeaway. I don't have any expectation that you'd leave those with me today. But if God speaks to you, uh, we need about 500 what we call founders, people who just give a modest monthly amount to keep that shelter open. As, the, as our U.S. director of East Java says, the reason why we emphasize so many small donors is, is that that shelter will need to stay open until Jesus comes back. It will need to operate every day until the return of Christ. And it will be the faithful handful that keep that place open and keep it ministering in love and and doing the work of God there. And so I'm humbled to even have the opportunity to share that little card with you. And and, uh, and God tells us when and where to give. And and I trust the Holy Spirit in that work. Uh, So that's about all I have to say about that. And we can turn to Isaiah 58 this morning. I do need to tell you that about a month ago, exactly four weeks ago, I was, I was in a church in, in um, Denpasar, Bali. I preached there in the morning and then in, again in the evening. And while I was preaching, a 7.0 earthquake happened. And, uh, and it, you probably heard about it in the news. It was a Lombok quake. It happened kind of between Lombok and Bali. And uh, even as it happened, I was a little bit late to the party. In fact, I was telling Mark uh, last night that the... Uh, the reason is is that uh, when I was preaching there in the morning, uh, this building, it kind of leans. In fact, it leaned pretty severely, enough so that my feet weren't telling me the truth about how I was standing. 
and sort of when I speak and preach, I'm pretty, pretty dialed in, and if I'm not on a flat surface, then I just get quite confused. And so uh, I, was, I kept looking down and to see if I was stepping on something or what it was, and the fact is, is this building tilted that way, I'd say five inches and 12 feet. And so it was pretty severe. So when I was back in the evening and this earthquake started to rock the building, I, I was already confused. And so I, I really didn't know what was happening. And I saw people start to rustle a little bit. And, and then I realized that something was going on. And, I, and then I said, are we having a little earthquake here? And, and as soon as I said that, you know, then people, just half the room just scurried out the back door. And this dear pastor, he's about 75 years old, he turns around and says, everybody sit down, it's fine. You know? And just as he said that, it seemed to me that the room just moved by about three feet and then back. And the guy translating for me says, I think we need to leave. You know, and I said, I think that's probably a pretty good idea. And so, so we got out and we hung out in the street for about 15 minutes and we came back in. I started preaching again. There was an aftershock. And I'm not saying that it was because of the preaching. I'm saying, well, it might have been. I was thinking, started to think that God didn't like my preaching, you know. And so... Uh, if it happens here, it's my fault, it's not your fault. He's not communicating to you, he's communicating to me. And so, uh, let's just go with that. Isaiah 58 is a crossover of two of the biggest themes in Scripture. And, you know, the biggest, boldest, if-then proposition that I, I think that we can find in Scripture. And the two themes are God's desire for our intimacy with him and God's heart for the poor. And they have a collision in this passage of Scripture that is just phenomenal. You know, the, I was talking several years ago to a friend of mine, Jim Scott, who at the time was the director of Foursquare Missions. And it was a time a lot like this, where, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, a lot of unrest, a lot of natural disasters and so on. And he just said, is this, is this the indicator that the Christ is near? And I said, it might be, I don't know. I said, but it's not the indicator that I'm looking for. The indicator that I'm looking for is when the heart of the church is turned to the poor. Then we will know that the heartbeat of Jesus is near. That when we are responding in the manner that Jesus responds, then we'll know he's near. Listen, when we're in his presence, we want to be like him. And so when he's near, we'll know that he's near. And I think in terms of this, like this massive migration of poor, of the poor to singular places that we call refugee camps, and Foursquare Disaster Relief is doing just tremendous work around this. And it's a reflection of the heart of the church that you have millions and millions of people, more than any, any previous time in history, moving to these singular places. And not everybody that is being forced out of their, of their home environment is doing so because they're poor, but they're poor now, there's no question. And they're in a very poor circumstance. And... And the fact that they're moving into these places and they're encamped together, I have to tell you something. The fact that their condition causes the heart of the church to beat for them tells me that Christ is near. And, and what this looks like to me, and this is just a spitball, I'm not writing theology here, but it looks a little bit like a wedding feast to me. It looks like a setup for a wedding feast. We'll invite everybody. Invite, just invite everybody. Invite the people that nobody wanted to have come. See if they come. My house isn't full enough. 
it sort of looks like a wedding feast for me. I think the poor can be understood in a number of ways, certainly the under-resourced, and, and God has this very tender spot. The scripture is so clear. I, I think he has this very tender spot for the endemically and the systemically poor. It's like he never takes his eyes off of them. But more universally, I think we can all understand that, that uh, it's any of us who are in need in any given moment, and, and, and it's a fair, fairly generic quality to to the need. It's when any of us are desperate. And we are all desperate at times. And so when any of us are desperate in any moment, and that's where the crossover of these themes are. When we are desperate, we have a greater tendency to call out to God. I think we understand that. We get as close to him as we can. It's when all my needs are met that I can tend to drift or not depend or not rely on God. That's just my human nature. You know, I've learned the hard way to see something as bigger than simple poverty. This cemetery population, a lot of our ministry is crafted around what they have asked for. And you know what? They're not asking for charity. They're asking for things like family camps. Help us with our families. And so once a year in February, we do a family camp, a one-day family camp, where we, we microbus everybody to this water park in the rich end of town. And in the morning, we have, we have a, a family camp, a teaching time, breakout sessions. In the afternoon, we release the children to the water. And we, this first year that we did this, we, we had these breakout sessions. And I was to be a group leader. I am ill-equipped for this. I don't know their language. I've got a group of nine women and one man. I'm not a woman. You know, just there a, a whole list of disqualifiers. And... And my life is quite different than the people's lives that I'm now leading this group for. And I've got these talking points. And I just made a terrible mistake, even as we were going through the first talking point, where I started to navigate the questions through the filter of poverty. And one of the women in this group picked up on it, this little tiny woman over to my right, and she interrupts me. And she says, Pastor Mike, you need to know something. She said, we accept our poverty. If you want to help us, will you talk to us about how to bring peace into our homes? How to heal our relationships? How to relate to our children? I thought, oh my goodness, those are all my questions. If you're to ask me, if you're to pin me to the wall and ask me what I need today, it's every one of those questions. Same as you, I presume. So we're all the same. We are all the same gave me pause as to whether that is my posture even before God. And I think it's interesting considering this morning's scripture, and if you'll let me, I'm going to read at length in Isaiah 58 from the New Living Translation. And hear the tender heart of God. Hear his rebuke and hear his tenderness. Shout with a voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud, don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins, yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and they seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God and they ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice it. I will tell you why I respond. It is because you are fasting to please yourselves. And even while you fast, you keep on oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? 
This kind of fasting, it will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds, bending in the wind. You dress in burlap. You cover yourselves with ashes. Is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. And let the oppressed go free. And remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And don't hide yourselves from relatives who need your help. Who in the world would do that? Then your salvation will come like the dawn. And your wounds will quickly heal. And your godliness will lead you forward. And the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. And then when you call, the Lord will answer, Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply, Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness. And the darkness around you will be bright as the noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you're dry, restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities, and then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. He goes on to talk about the Sabbath, and then he says, I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob, which I will speak about in a minute. I think Isaiah 58 is a huge invitation and a huge invitation to an aptly described blessing, you will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. The NIV says, like a spring whose waters never fail. And while it's a promise of God, I think it presents as an invitation this abundance of life in all aspects that is a matter of availability if our hearts are like God's. There's this leveraged value proposition that you cannot miss. This is an if-then proposition And and there aren't a whole lot of them like this in Scripture. This is leveraged for us, and he invites us to it. Interesting that he affirms the promise of Jacob. Jacob lived a life that had a lot of promises and a tremendous amount of disappointment. And you know what the last promise to Jacob was in Genesis 46? Your family will be restored. That was an impossibility, by the way. An impossibility, but the last promise to him, your relationships are going to be fixed. And God invites us to a fulfillment of promises that he has made that he intends to keep. You know, invitation is this powerful theme through scripture. God invites us to himself. He invites us to his ideas. And at the same time, he awaits an invitation to our lives. He's a gentleman. He doesn't crowd in. He waits, and when we exchange invitation we, and welcome with Jesus, there's a life that happens that we can't explain. And I think God invites us to this blessing and even the why of the promise. And you don't have to look far beyond verse 11 to see what's involved in this blessing after he talks about these simple requirements to essentially just help the poor. Which, by the way, do you notice that he says, give clothes, give food, give shelter, he is not asking us to solve everybody's problems. He's just asking us to be mindful of the front door needs. Because it's not our responsibility to take on the problems of other people. It's not our responsibility to 
to do the work that the Holy Spirit does or to do the work that somebody has to do for themselves, but he does ask us to help. He does ask us to help. You know, it is, I think, a pure fear of not getting our own needs met that causes us to mistreat other people. And I think it's the person that's so close to God that just seems like they, they're untouchable. I mean, you know things hurt them, but they just recover fast because for some reason they have this, this wellspring, if you will. That they have this, this internal thing that just, I don't know, makes them more mature than I am. You know, sort of makes you sick because they can sustain more. And when we're apart from that, it seems to make us willing to do harm to others or not, not help others. But listen to this blessing. Your light will shine out from the darkness. The darkness around you will be bright as the noon. We know people like this. The Lord will guide you continually. He'll give you water when you're dry. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. You know what a wellspring is? It's a well that you didn't have to dig. It's a well that you didn't have to dig. And when you consider what we're invited to, and I just want to quickly say a few things that I think we're invited to this morning. One is that we're invited to an actual intimacy with God. One through five, these verses describe a false intimacy. And we can hear him saying, I'm tired of your pageantry. I'm tired of this idea that you're close to me and the notion that you do right and that you know right, and that in some way earns you a pathway to my love. When my love was free, my love for you is, is an incumbent blessing that flows freely on you. God actually calls us to himself and he calls us on his terms and his terms are good for us because the fact is is that he he intercepted us most of us when we were at or near bottom or at a place where we needed to come back to God the idea that a wellspring is a well that you don't have to dig is a picture that is counter to religion because religion is the idea that you need to dig your own well and you need to dig it in the right spot, and you need to dig it the right way, and then it's a maybe proposition. You might get to water. You might get to water. You There's this biblical illustration. Abraham and Isaac, they were prolific well diggers. Genesis 26 outlines it. But it also outlines that everybody litigated against them by burying their wells. They would have land disputes with the Philistines or with other neighbors, and then people would come along and bury their wells. This was their wealth, by the way. This was their portfolio, their ability to find and, and, and make water. And then somebody would bury them, and it says that Isaac reopened most of Abraham's wells, and then somebody came along and buried a lot of them. You can't bury a wellspring. You can try to bury a wellspring, but it's just going to bubble up again. And here's the thing. When you attack a construct of God, I just don't think he's that intimidated. I think he's okay. I don't think he's uh, insecure. And you can't dispute the life that comes from a wellspring. God calls us to an intimacy with him that he provides for. 
And he calls us to come as we are. If you read Malachi 1, it's actually a startling passage of scripture. I think it runs in parallel to Isaiah 58. And he, he says this, you can hear the voice of God. You can hear the tender mercy of God when he says, you know, I've always loved you. I've always loved you. And then he talks about the religious pageantry the way he is in Isaiah 58. And he says something so surprising. He says, just slam the doors of the temple. Just close them. I'm done with this. I'm done with this. And then he says some things that go from shocking to scandalous. He says, you know, there's other nations interested in me. There's other girls interested in me. I mean, that's the parallel of what he's saying. There's other nations interested in me. And then this is where it gets scandalous. You should see how they want to worship me. They want to burn incense to me day and night. He's putting it, to put it in our terms, he's saying, you know, I, I didn't get into this thing to be roommates. I didn't get into this to be an underappreciated provider. I got into this for love and I have always loved you. Sometimes these are warnings that make us stand up straight, but you can hear the mercy of God when he prefaces it with a thesis that says, I've always loved you. You gain this sense that that love's not going to end and that we can come back. Real quickly this morning, it, he invites us also to a heart that's like his, a transformed heart. You know, there's a reason why, why Israel wasn't caring for the poor. You know what the reason was? They didn't want to. It's a real simple reason. They didn't want to. We do what we want to do. We say what we want to say. And the Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And is there anything that God talks about more than he talks about the poor? I don't think that there is. It's hundreds upon hundreds of verses throughout scripture. I want to read the words of a poem this morning that's written by our the director of our of our cemetery outreach kind of tells the story of the cemetery but I think it tells the story of the heart of God in an even greater way we believe you know how we feel that's what she said to me in her tidy tiny cement room among the graves her nine-year-old boy the size of a toddler lay motionless on the bed he cannot walk or eat or speak she's asked me in to pray you know how we feel. I leave my flip-flops at the door. This is holy ground. A place where religion cannot go. This is love's domain. Looking into the boy's bulging eyes, startled at what I see, the very face of God staring back at me. God, you know how we feel. Taking her hand to say goodbye, I kiss her wet cheek and taste the salty tears of God. God, you know how we feel. I have seen God, and he lives in a cemetery. Let me say this as I close. You know, the invitation of God to things like this, it's so subtle, it's so simple, it's so powerful. That cemetery is a special place for me. I've been in that cemetery, walked away from the crowd, and heard God speak to me, say, this is where I am. You can come if you want to. An invitation. 
you know that miracle in the in John 2 the wedding in Cana where it's just confusing it doesn't fit into the rest of scripture there was nobody healed there was nobody raised from the dead there were no demons cast out there were no more Pharisees made mad you know it just doesn't fit as far as I can tell it was the enabling of further drunkenness at a three-day party we got to have a talk with Jesus about whether he's truly an evangelical or not. John 2, 1 says this, and it's the reason why it all happened. Jesus and his disciples were also invited. He invites us to this thing that is so special and so mysterious that if we open our hearts to the big table of heaven, we realize that we're accompanied by the poor And the only thing that makes sense in explanation is they need us and we need them. And they don't need our resources per se, we need relationship. It is in this that we see the wholeness of God and the wholeness of heaven. It's why we strive for multi-ethnic churches. It's why we strive for multi-generational churches. It's why we strive for churches that are socioeconomically diverse. We need each other. Because it's a picture of intimacy with God. As we finish this morning, when I consider that cemetery, I, I get invited into people's homes. The things that we get invited to are so special. I get invited into people's homes. There's a, there's a little woman named Manar. I've got a picture of her. A little Muslim gal who worked the cemetery for several years. And whenever I would come into town, I would get an invitation. Manar wants you to come to her house to pray. I do not like this setup. I don't like the idea that this little woman thinks that having me come and pray is going to be more effective because I'm a pastor, that somehow I have the red phone to God and that he's going to listen to me. I can make my case. I feel like he doesn't listen to me. I don't think you want me to come, but she wants me to come. So whenever I step into her little room that's the size of this platform and five people live in it, I take my shoes off because I'm standing on her bed. And we pray and she brings out the big list. My brother is sick and dying. You have to pray that he's healed. And it goes on from there. And so we stand and we join hands and I pray the most, most faithless prayer that I know how to pray. Because <laughs> it's just not there. And then she calls the next day and says, my brother's been healed. And I have to deal with the fact that it's her faith and not mine, you know? Why does that happen there? We, we get that question asked, right? And I don't think it's a valid question except for this. I think that Jesus just comes where he's welcome. And he's welcome in a little Muslim woman's house. And he comes where he's invited. And things happen when we invite him into our homes. And he comes to these unpredictable places. Let me take liberty and just say one more thing this morning. I think about, I I spend myself thinking about our relationship with Muslims quite a lot because we have ministry to them. And Manar loves Jesus, by the way. She came to know Christ. She's an usher in her church. Ask her, tell me about your church. First thing she told me was, you know what? They don't even treat me like I'm poor. So that's a church I can go to, Manar. I'd like to go there somewhere with you someday. You know, when Hagar was exiled and Ishmael with her, 
just some powerful things that happened there that I think that we kind of overlook in terms of the promises of God because we so believe in God's promise to Abraham and that promise fulfilled through Isaac and so on. But he made promises to Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael, the name God hears, that they're exiled and he shows up right away because the baby was crying. She says, why did you come? And he said, well, I heard the baby. So he's true to himself. And then something that only happens in intimacy, Hagar gets to do something that very few people in scripture did. She got to name God. She named him the God who still sees me. You know, we only give people nicknames when we're intimate with them. Right? You've, been, you've had three or four dates before the nickname comes out. You're, by the time you're engaged, you got a few nicknames and they stick. Right? That comes out of intimacy. Hagar named God and it stuck. Because he was close to her. Because he was welcome. He comes where he's welcome. We stand together this morning. A couple things that, as we pray, when I have an increased intimacy with God, it changes how I pray. I'm going to pray here in a minute, and it's going to be a prayer for public consumption. It's going to be with all of the meaning I can muster, but it's not going to be the prayer I pray when I pray by myself in quiet. I say things to God that I don't say to you. That's intimacy, right? It also changes the things that I ask for. The NASB says this. It's a very literal translation. It's very important for us to know this as we go to prayer. The Bible says that he will bring new life to the scorched places. It's a very literal word. The Hebrew says scorched places. The places that are dead. The places where you're cynical. The places where there's no hope for life. The promise to Jacob, I'm going to restore your relationships. It's not possible because my son is dead. That means he has to do a resurrection in us. And he does that. He's into that. And so that's how we pray this morning. Lord, we pray... Lord, over the scorched places and that that would be your ministry to us this morning. Lord, that every one of us, when we say the word scorched places, it took us about a half a second to identify those places. I pray over those places, over our broken relationships today, over the things that hurt that we've given up on, over the promises we thought you made but we've decided we heard you wrong, over those things that are so painful they require an intervention of you and that you promise this thing of intimacy that you will pour life over it like water like water from a spring that will not fail and so much so that the Bible says you'll change our story we will be known as a healer of homes as a rebuilder of cities and walls Lord let that be true about every single person in this room and about this church as a whole this beacon of hope, this lighthouse in this community, over this pastor and this staff, and we pray it, and we pray it in abundance. And we thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike.
Thank you for listening to the Grace Capital Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this podcast and the mission that we have in New England, or if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to support this ministry financially, please visit us online at gccnh.com 